Anyone out there like to run? A few? I am very familiar with the endurance and the work and the pain and the time and the effort and the difficulty that goes with distance running. Not because I run, but my wife runs. And she started out like with the pear blossom, which I love to watch the pear blossom. Because you go before the race and everyone's all packed together there and they're all in their high-tech gear and they're all setting their watches and getting all ready and they're high-fiving each other and they're grinning and they're yelling and they're screaming and bouncing up and down and high-fiving. But I don't like to watch the race there. I like to go about six miles into the race and watch it there. Because the grins are grimaces now. There's no high fives because they can't even lift their arm to a five. It's a low one. And now they're not yelling for like joy. They're yelling for like Advil. Advil. You got Advil? Codeine. Morphine. Heroin. I don't care. Something, right? (laughs) So my wife loves to run. She started with Pear Blossom. She does like, she did a 32 mile like ultra marathon now. And I just think that it's crazy. I do not like to run. You have to have somebody or a animal chasing me for me to run. That's about it. But there's another thing I don't like. I don't like to get sick. So about 15 years ago, I was actually at Blake Bradley. I was talking to this guy who was a big time runner. And he started just going down these statistics saying, listen, when you run it, boost your immune system. You're less likely to get sick. He just had the whole thing going. And I hate getting sick. I hate getting sick more than I hate running. So I thought, I'll give it a shot. So I started running. And I would run, I'd leave my house, go down a mile, and then run a mile back. And I would sprint it as hard as I could run for two miles. And I started doing that five times a week. And I did that for about five weeks, about 25 times. And then I got deathly ill. (laughs) So I quit and I have not run since. Here's why. If it doesn't work, I'm not doing it, right? The test, the measure of any philosophy of life is, does it actually do what you think it does, right? So people say they run, they get a second high. I think they're insane. I think their body is telling them, stop this now, or I'm gonna make you insane. I think that's what it is, right? So the measure of any philosophy is, does it actually do what you think it does? So running was supposed to make me healthy. I got sick, I quit. So we're in a series right now called Good Question. We've looked at things like doubt and is there a God and what's the deal with scripture and suffering and those kind of questions. I wanna conclude with this question. Why bother? Why bother with all the effort it takes to come to church, to get ready, to show up here, to read your Bible, to pray, to volunteer, to be involved, right? Why bother? All this effort, all that I'm doing, does it actually make a difference? Does it do anything? So I'll give you a quote from Bill Gates, Microsoft man, and this is what he had to say about religion. Just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. 
there's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Bill Gates. A lot more I could be doing like making a computer system with a blue screen of death or vaccines or whatever he's doing right now, right? So is Bill Gates right? That, hey, you got all this time and all this effort, does it make a difference? Does it make your life better? Does it make you happier? Does it bring you joy? Does it bring flourishing? Does your family do better? Are you more generous? Are the promises of scripture actually lived out? Because Jesus says, John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and it more abundantly. Is that true? Or Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I have towards you, thoughts to bring you to a glorious end. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love him. Is that true? Are my kids going to do better if I'm involved? Is my marriage going to do better if I'm involved? Is my career going to be better? Is my life going to be better? Am I mentally and spiritually better equipped for life by this thing called church? Right? Why bother? Is the city of Grants Pass or Merlin or Cave Junction or Selma or Rogue River or Medford, is the city that you live in, is it better because it's full of weekly churchgoers or would it be better if it was full of weekly seven feather goers? Right? Like, can you measure this stuff? Is Bill Gates right in terms of time allocation? There's something better you could be doing with your Sunday morning. That all the effort it takes to get here and get your kids here, and I know they'll complain and say, I don't want to come. Why do I have to come? It's so boring. And I, is all that effort worth it, right? Can you measure this stuff? Is it possible? I think you can measure it, and it has been measured, okay? So the two things I want to look at, two sides of it is, first of all, there's a narrative on history when it comes to the church, that the church has stood idly by when there was slavery or idly by when there was issues, that the church has been anti-women and pro-greed, pro-empire, taking things, right? So maybe you took that college class and the professor just went down the line of how bad the church is and you're sitting there as a Christian thinking, man, I feel like I should apologize for like the crusades and intolerance and land grabs and ah, right? So there's that side, there's the history side. Has, has the church been good? Big church, gospel, has, it, has that had a good positive effect on the world in the last 2,000 years? Because Abraham was promised this in Genesis 12. He was promised that from you is coming a descendant and that descendant will bless all the families of earth. Are we seeing that? Is that true, right? And then the other side is just you, your family, your kids, your career. Like, does this work? Does this do anything? Does it matter, okay? Why bother is the question. So first, let's tackle history. And I don't have time to do everything, but how about slavery? Because slavery is a big one. Did the church sit idly by as slavery happened and not say anything and just kind of, well, turn a blind eye to it or ever? Or were they actually pro-slavery? Like, what is the history of the church when it comes to slavery? Well, let's rewind the clock 
330 AD. This guy, he is well known if you know church history. His name is Gregory of Nyssa. He's a church father. He's venerated, all that kind of stuff. And 330 is a very important date. I'll explain why. But in 330 AD, Gregory of Nyssa, a leader in the church, he said this. He said, slavery is unpardonable. You stand in the place of God. When you're doing this and subjugating a people, you are taking the place of God and it's unpardonable. He said that in 330 AD. Now that's an important date because here's what happened in 330 AD. Christianity was no longer illegal. So up to that point, if you were a Christian, yet you're probably gonna get your head cut off or something. Like it was not good to be a Christian. They were after you. The apostle Paul was chased down time and time again until finally they got his head cut off. Like it was not good. But in 323 AD, Constantine gave the Edict of Toleration and that began to move through the Roman Empire. And for the first time, Christians could begin to speak freely about society. So you have a guy saying, hey, this thing that you guys are saying is the engine of the Roman Empire, it is unpardonable, it is wrong. And you can just keep going, 600 AD. There's this gal, she is the wife of Clovis who was a king, her name is Saint Bathalide. In 600 AD, she outlawed and made it illegal, had this just crusade against slavery. Then, a couple hundred years after that, 851, there's a guy by the name of Saint Anskar, who he was a Viking, made it illegal and crusaded against, made it just completely outlawed Viking slave trading. And then by 1200 AD, St. Thomas Aquinas, if you know your history, St. Thomas Aquinas is the guy that codifies what the big C church believed. And he said this, slavery is a sin. So the idea that's kind of put out there that the church was just like, well, I don't, no way, no way, right? It was Christians in Great Britain that changed the world when it came to slavery, finally 1800s, because they finally had some power, right? You know the story. And if you don't know this, Britain bankrupted a generation stopping slavery. Not only did they eliminate it in their colonies and everything, the sun did not set on the Roman Empire or on the British Empire. It was massive. And they, they went a step further. They took their navy and patrolled the slave routes to stop the slave trade. They bankrupted themselves for a generation to stop it. Why? Because of Christians. So to me, no way. Man, we have, the church was the only group for many millennia that just said, no, 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 no. This thing is gross, it has to stop. So that, that idea to me, it's just, it's, it's an ignorance and it's an agenda against this thing that we love so much. So slavery, no way. How about, number two, children. If you know your history, you know that children, for the most part of history, have been really just kind of expendable. Like it's only recently that children have any kind of rights or, or protection. So if you could go back 2,000 years and you could be in Rome or you could be in Greece or any of these places, infanticide was normal. Study Sparta. Sparta had this thing. If a child was born and it looked weak or handicapped, if it was the runt of the litter, guess what would they do with that child? They'd throw it in this pit, just eh, nonchalantly. Like that was the norm. And, and today we're like, oh, how wrong is that? But is America that different? Are we that different? 
Because a year and a half ago, there was two governors that got a lot of news press, the governor of New York and the governor of Virginia, because New York a year and a half ago passed a law making abortion legal all the way up and into labor, which is insane to me. It's legal in New York to have an abortion when you're in labor, right? So the governor of Virginia, who is a medical doctor, was asked about the law. And he said this, he said, well, I think that after a child is born, the doctor and the mom should be able to have a discussion. What are they discussing? The weather? No, whether that child should live or not. And we should not be, be surprised by that because there's been a guy who's been teaching these people. He's a Harvard bioethicist. His name is Peter Singer. He's been there for about 30 years. And so he is chugging out these people. And he said 25 years ago, a healthy pig is better for society than a handicapped child. And he said that a parent should have a 30-day period after a child is born to decide whether it should live or not. Are we better than Sparta? Oh, man. Mm. Right? So this is the birth. Like, it, it takes us by surprise, but that was the water the church swam in. Okay, so we have a letter from a Roman businessman back to his wife. Just, this is how things were. Like, it's nonchalant. He's not hiding anything. It's just the way things were. I'm still not in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Which means leave it by the side of the road where a wild animal will come and kill it. How nonchalant is that, right? How's the weather? Things are great over here. Oh, by the way, if you have a girl, kill it. Because that was the norm. That was the water that people swam in. It wasn't like, that. this is the, the birth of the church. Children were treated like this. If you go to India today, and I've been there five times because of Hinduism, it's a Hindu nation. And the dowry system put on girls. Girls there are still killed to this day. That in Southeast India, when a woman goes into labor, the birthing coach or whatever you want to call her puts a kettle on of hot water because if that baby is born and it's a girl they just take the baby and drop it in that kettle of water or if they don't do that they take the baby outside walk down the road and set it by the side of the road and i have been at body of christ ministries a place that we uh, have helped and built 15 churches over there uh, i've been at body of christ ministries when the cops show up with a two or three hour old baby and say here you go and they take every single baby girl. There are girls, it's a 25 acre campus. There are girls everywhere there because they have made a policy. We will take every single baby girl. This thing is wrong. Infanticide is wrong, right? So the church, the church, you can go all the way back. 330 AD, it's a really important time. This lady named Macrina the Younger, she is the first person that said this. I will take, we will take her group of women, we will take every single unwanted child. It's the birth, they say, that is the moment the church birthed orphanages. And you can say orphanages are good or bad or whatever. It was a reaction against what they saw and they said, that is wrong. 
That is an image bearer of God and it deserves life. And we will take that child and we will care for it and we will raise it, period. 330 AD. Seven years later, Constantine, ruling the Roman Empire, Constantine said, infanticide is illegal. He did that because of the Bible. So this thing that we're doing to kids is unbelievably wrong. And that was radical. Today we're like, ah! No, that was radical thinking. Birthed because of the church, right? So slavery, man, the church stood against it. Children, elevated children. How about women? Is a church the place where women are to be barefoot and pregnant, cooking in the kitchen? Amen, Matt, that's the way they're supposed to be. Okay, let me give you how women were viewed 2,000 years ago. So if you went to Greece 2,000 years ago, know this, men, men would have a wife for legitimate children. Number two, they'd have what was called a palake simply for sex. Nothing else, just sex. They'd have a heteri, and she was a woman that would be educated that they would take out like to dates and uh, on social events to, you know, like arm candy or something. They could carry on good conversations and all that kind of stuff. And then fourthly, they would visit temple prostitutes. So a man in Greece 2,000 years ago would have three or four women that he would control but be committed to none of them. And that was just the way it was because men could do that. So I have a commentary called the New Bible Commentary by D.A. Carson. He's not, he, he is a solid Bible scholar, right? He writes this. This is on a wedding. And I've said this before. It's just so good. I can't believe it. It was traditional. On the wedding day. So you're doing a wedding. I'm up here doing the wedding. Part of my vows, part of my thing is this. To declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute, or a woman of easy virtue. It was not a sign that he did not love her, but simply a way of gratifying his passions. Think about that. You go to a wedding, bride and groom up there, pledge the love to each other. And then, hey, well, time out before you kiss the bride. Hey, sweetie, listen, when this guy over here commits adultery on you, it's not because he doesn't love you. Could you imagine that? Man, dads would be coming out of the front row killing pastors. It would be the, most, the world's most dangerous job is what it would be. You're dead, right? I have three daughters. I'm killing a dude that says that to my daughter, right? This was just common. It was like, why? Because that's the water that culture swam in. I mean, they would look at that like, yeah, that's normal, you know? Like, what? Monogamy? What are you talking about? Who in the world would do that, right? So that, something's changed radically, right? Um, Rome had a caste system. Women could not own property and they had no decision right over their children. So if dad wanted to send kid off to military camp, if dad said, you know what, I'm done with you kid, I'm kicking you out, the woman could do nothing about that because she had no power at all. So what began to change that? Well, there's this guy named Pliny the Younger. If you've read Rome and the history of Rome, Pliny the Younger is one of the big names that come up. He's a historian. Well, he was tasked by Emperor Trajan, who hated Christianity, to figure out why is Christianity doing so well? We've been trying to snuff it out and kill it, and it seems like the more we stamp it out, the more fires it starts. What's up with it? 
So he was tasked with trying to figure out. And he writes in his writing, this, a little side note, he's like, I went to this church, and in this church, this is the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, in this church, there were two slave women that were deaconesses. Now, why would he write that? Because he was shocked. Women, what? They can't do anything. What in the world? Why are they deaconesses in the church? There are slave women on top of that. This is insanity. So you have very quickly in the church, women being elevated to these new roles, holding positions in the church. Now, why would the church do that? Because we're informed by the Bible. Genesis 1.26. In the beginning, God created them male and female. And he said to them, not to him, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. The same mandate is given to both the male and the female. That's why. That's why the New Testament, Galatians chapter three, verse 28, puts it like this. There's not male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That's why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter three, verse seven, hey, husband and wife, you are joint heirs of the coming kingdom. Wherever the Bible has gone, wherever the gospel has gone, it has elevated up the role of women. Did you know it was illegal in Rome to be a widow? You can be a widow. If your husband died, you had two years, clock starts, to get remarried. Guess why? Because they didn't want to take care of you. That's why. The church found this intolerable. Forced weddings, we don't believe in that. So because of 1 Timothy 5, very early in the church, funds were set aside and they were earmarked for guess what? Widows. So they don't have to be forced to marry someone they don't want to be married to. Because the church very quickly said, this is wrong and intolerable. So we are gonna start a fund that says to widows, hey, we will take care of you. Don't let the, this, Rome, don't worry about it. We will take care of you. We're not gonna force you to get remarried. I love that. Like there's stuff, like you go back and you read history, it's unimaginable the way people are treated. What's changed in the world? The gospel. When I read church history, 90% of it I am proud of. 10%? It's evil people. And evil, evil people always infiltrate ways that they can use and twist and do their own thing with. And that happens inside the church as well. 90% though is brilliant. Man, the church has stood for, for the rights of women and the rights of kids and against slavery. I can go on and on and on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna it's a fire hose today, I understand that. So I'm cutting it back, all right? History though, the world has been changed because of the church. There's no one that says, that you read any historian, they'll all say that. The way the world is today is a byproduct of Christianity, right? Number two, personally, how about you? Does it change you? Does it change your family? Does it change your marriage? All those kind of things. So if you are in church, do you think marriage matters in the church? Yeah. I don't think it matters anywhere else anymore. If you look around, the church is the last buttress when it comes to the importance of being married and all those kind of things, right? So the Catholic church says marriage is a sacrament, meaning this, it is a covenant before God that cannot be broken. That's why there's no divorce in the Catholic church. What do you get if you don't wanna be married to somebody in the Catholic church? You get an annulment. An annulment means this, that marriage never happened. It was illegitimate. That's how serious they are about marriage. 
If it didn't work, then it wasn't a right marriage. It never happened, actually. I mean, that's how serious the church has been about marriage, huge. Now, why would there be such this emphasis on marriage? Because it matters. It matters to your kids. So I have this study, and this study looked at people that cohabitated, had kids, but never got married. I call it pretending to be married. So you would think, well, you know, they're together and both dad and wife are there and, and you know, it, or excuse me, both dad and mom are there. I, they're not married, but you know what? It seems like it would be everything. They're pretending, right? Well, there's no commitment. And there's something about commitment that changes things. So listen to these statistics on kids raised in a cohabitating home. Number one, they are 98% more likely to be physically abused. Number two, they're 130% more likely to be sexually abused. Number three, they're 64% more likely to be emotionally abused. They are more likely to fail in school, or to follow the law, be depressed, and do drugs. How about financially? This is the one that just fascinated me. They did this study in, in Australia, they found this. If a mom and dad will stay married, their kid has 80% more wealth in adulthood. Think about that for a second. Think about your net worth, everything, your house, your car, your clothes, your, your whatever it is, your PS3, whatever you've got that's valuable, okay? And then almost double it. Wow, what a gift to give to your kids. And there was done, one done in America, and it was this. If there's divorce, children paid a median wealth penalty of at least 61,000 if they did not live with their parents continually through age 18. You wanna give your kids 61 grand? Stay married, right? These are just statistics. This is just somebody, this isn't a Christian. This, this, these are just, we're, we're chugging through raw numbers to figure out how kids do, what causes them to fare better. And over and over, it's committed, married, mom and dad, kids thrive. How about, how about dads? How important are dads? Sometimes dads get kind of shuffled off. So there's this great psychologist. His name is Rob Palovitz. He's awesome. And he said this, he found out because of a dad, a dad's just size, a dad's strength, a dad's just aggressiveness, like dads are more aggressive than moms. It's just that simple. Because of that presence, size, strength, and aggressiveness, what they found was the kids of a dad who's in the home were protected from sexual predators, and from peer pressure. Like just the physical presence of dad there. Those people that would try to come in and get kids to do wrong things, just their presence scared them off. And he said this, and this is the one that got me. The number one predictor of teen pregnancy is a missing dad. Regardless of how much money that family has, education of that family, any, there's nothing even close to if dad's gone. If dad's gone, look out, daughters are gone. Why? Because there's something about the size and the strength and the presence of dad staying in the home that protects his kids. It's so huge. Dads encourage their kids to take risk, right? Moms are always, oh God, don't do that. Dads are like, come on, son, send it, right? <laughs> Represent. And that's healthy because what happens is kids then, when they grow up, they're much more independent and they're much more willing to take risks. 
They're much more willing to, hey, I'm going to try that. I'm going to go for it. Like, it's huge. You need both, right? I'll give the story about me. So I love studies. I'm a study fanatic. So Carissa, my firstborn, she's, uh, you know, my wife's getting ready to give birth. And I'm like reading, 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 reading. And I found this study that was fascinating to me. That infants, for the first year, their brain develops by tactile stimulation, right? They're not audio learners. They're not visual learners. They learn by touching. That is how they learn. So when a a baby's starting to learn stuff, they grab it, and what do they do with it? All right, in the mouth, why? Because the mouth is the most sensitive part on a baby. And they learn by like just running their tongue all over the thing, like, wow, that's interesting feeling, right? Like, that's just simple. That's how they learn. So I'm like, oh my goodness. And the study said, parents make a giant mistake because they put their infant in these just soft wombs, right? It's these cuddly little clothes and, and soft and there's no tactile stimulation. So Chris is born and my wife has these 100% Egyptian cotton onesies and cashmere sweaters and fleece blankets. And I'm like, no, we need an 80 grit sandpaper onesie. <laughs> Sweetie, come on. Tactile stimulation, right? And so I was kind of losing that. I'm like, okay, fine. Compromise. We'll put hay in her crib. (laughs) I'm like, I got the Bible here. When Jesus was born, what was he put? Yep. God knows, right? Like you need that balance on both sides. How about this? This study found literally balance in a four-year-old. A four-year-old that's grown up with a dad has much better balance than one that did not. Now, why would that be? It's survival, man. Like a cat being dropped and landing on its feet. Like kids have to learn very quick with the dad. Like, look out, he's gonna drop me. He's gonna bump me. He's gonna knock me over, right? It's just, this is why. This is why, okay? How about these facts? Men that get married. So if you're in here and you're married, Listen, these are 10-year-old numbers. This is from a 2010 study. You'll make more money. If you're 28 to 30, you make $15,900 more per year just by being married. How cool is that? If you're 40 to 46, you make $18,800 more per year. Why? Because you have a wife who's saying, don't do that, sweetie. Come on, right? Just that simple help. (laughs) Employees are more likely to hire married men. Why? Because they're stable, right? And lastly, you, you're, if you're a man and you're married, it immediately cuts by one half your propensity to commit a crime. Just right off the bat, just not married, married. Cut every single thing in half, your propensity to commit crime, right? So marriage is important. That's why the church has always said, hey, be married, stay married, do this, right? Now, does going to church help your marriage? Right? That's eventually what you gotta get to. Okay, we know marriage is good. All these statistics show it for kids, for everything, for your finances. So does church help? I've got this book. If you wanna read a really brilliant book, it's called American Grace by Robert Putnam. If you don't know who Robert Putnam is, he's the foremost political scientist in America. Goes to, he's a Harvard professor, wrote the book Bowling Alone, which is brilliant. Man, read that book. So he writes Bowling Alone, explodes, and then he thought, you know what? I wanna see 
Does religion do anything for people? Does it affect anything? So he and another guy wrote this book called American Grace that looks at this. And he had to, he had to ferret out what actually matters. And this is what actually matters. He calls them regular church attenders. We're not talking about the poinsettia Easter lily crowd. Comes twice a year, thinks there's always flowers in the church, right? It's not those guys. This is the people that say three, four times a month, I am going to church. Here's what he found. He found this, that 70% of regular church goers have very happy marriages. This blows away the non-church goer. 70%, I am in a, not a good marriage, a very happy marriage. And there's this statistic that's thrown around that the divorce rate inside the church and outside the church is the same. And that may be true if you group in the poinsettia lily crew as well that come twice a year. But if you get rid of them, and you just look at regular church attenders, people that are allocating time and resources to getting here weekly, that rate drops from 50% to now well under 30%. It almost gets cut in half by taking some time every Sunday morning and coming to church, right? Dads that are regular church attenders spend more time with their children and more time volunteering in activities that their children are involved in. Dads are 65% more likely to praise or hug their kids if they are regular church attenders. I'm telling you, I have so many, it's a fire hose right now. I mean, I could just blow you away. Every single metric in American Grace that you can measure going to church weekly transforms people's lives. So Bill Gates... You want to change, change society? Go to church. That's how you change society. Go to church. How about you and your spouse? Does going to church help you and your spouse? So there's this study. I'll put it up right now because it's like, you know, it's like studies are. The social and cultural predictors of generosity in marriage. Gender egalitarianism, religiosity, right? Religiosity is their term for going to church regularly. All right, so in this study, here's what he found. He has this term called marital generosity. Marital generosity is attending to the needs of your spouse, little acts of service, affection, talking to them, taking time for them. What makes for a good marriage? Marital generosity. So he says this. This is the way it's put. Religiosity has a positive association with marital generosity. English, couples that go to church are better at forgiving each other, respecting each other, loving each other, serving each other, and helping each other. That's literally what it says. Now, why would that be? Because we serve a king who is all those things. And when you serve a king who is all those things, you wanna emulate him and become like him. And it begins to matter and change you, and it takes place, right? I'll give you one final one, the Atlantic. If you know news, the Atlantic, is a left-leaning news source, okay? So right now, the left is just, it's all about thruples and swinging and just chaos when it comes to sex, right? Listen to what they said, The Atlantic. The romance of companion love seems to make people happiest when it's, not like the Greeks, 
monogamous. In a 2004 survey of 16,000 American adults found for, I don't know why they say man, singular, and women, plural, but I just, I should have put, this is wrong, but spelling, right? Man and woman alike, the happiness maximizing number of sexual partners in the previous years is calculated to be, isn't that such a fascinating way of saying it? Yeah, monogamy works. Like, this is what the Bible has said for a long time. You wanna be happy? Be married and stay married and serve and love and respect and forgive and you'll find huge happiness. Does this affect your marriage? Oh, 100%. Like, read that book. I have statistic after statistic after statistic. It works. How about personally? Does this do anything for you personally? Are we more generous? Because Jesus said, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is better to give than to receive. So do we see that? Well, if you're a news junkie, I am. In 2015 came out this study, it was in Current Biology, where the author said this, children that go to church regularly become more stingy as adults. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. So I cut it out, kept it. Guess what? That study has been proven to be false, fake, bad with an agenda over and over and over again. You can't find the study anymore because it's been retracted. Yeah, we had an agenda. So it was done by this guy named Dr. Vanderweel of Harvard University. And he did this incredible study and this is what he came up with in 2019. The effect of a religious upbringing seems to contribute to a greater generosity towards others many years later during young adulthood. His study found that children who attended religious services were more likely to have high levels of volunteering, forgiveness, and a sense of mission, and less likely to encounter depression, drugs, and other risky behaviors. I know it's hard to get your kids here sometime, but it matters. Science is just point 2019. This is not a long time ago. That's two years ago. Yep, coming here matters. Getting your kids involved in community groups or in our youth groups and taking them on, it matters. It changes you. You become more generous. How about this? James 1, 3 and 4 says this, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing that the trine of your faith produces patience and let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete entire, lacking nothing. The Bible over and over says, listen, difficulty isn't the worst thing. So you and I, I would think because of the Bible, because of Jesus, because of his spirit, we would be better able to handle difficulty. Is that true? Are we better able to handle difficult things like let's say 2020? Are we? Google Gallup poll, 2020. The article says this, it's the title of their study. Gallup poll finds Christian Americans were the only group in America to not say their mental health declined in 2020. There's millions of groups now, just look at them. There's all kinds of identity groups. Every other group showed a mental decline in 2020. There's one group that did not, regular church attenders, Gallup poll. Why? 
because our hope is not in a COVID virus or a COVID vaccine or economy. Our hope is in Jesus and he is the anchor of our soul. That's why. We're not pinned to that. Now we got a higher hope than that. How about John 10, 10? Is life better because of Jesus? He promised it. You'll have life and you'll have it more abundantly. Are we happier because of what we do? Regular church attendance. Well, this guy named Christopher Ellison and his study is Religious Involvement in Subjective Wellbeing, Journal of Health and Social Behavior. And it's a long one, but I just grabbed this. Researchers have found that religious people are happier. How about this one? This is from American Grace. And this is just brilliant. Other things being equal, the difference in happiness between a non-churchgoer and a weekly churchgoer is slightly larger than the difference between someone who earns $10,000 a year and his demographic twin who earns $100,000 a year. That's insane, right? Coming here weekly is like getting a $90,000 raise for your happiness. We'll take 10%. (laughs) It's a small thing. I mean, how amazing is that? That's Robert Putnam, not a Christian, Harvard professor, just crunching the numbers, going through their algorithm saying, man, going to church is like getting 90 grand on your happiness. Does this work? Oh my goodness. Okay, last one. Jesus gives two commands. He goes, everything else hinges on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we better neighbors? Are Christians better neighbors? So this is what he does. He just starts this list. And he goes, churchgoers, give more money to charity. Churchgoers, do volunteer work for, do more volunteer work for charity. Churchgoers are more likely to give money to a homeless person. Churchgoers give excess change back to a shop clerk. Churchgoers donate more blood. Churchgoers are more likely to help someone outside their own household with housework. Churchgoers will spend more time with someone who is a bit down. Churchgoers will allow a stranger to cut in front of them. Churchgoers offer a seat to a stranger. Churchgoers help someone find a job. Churchgoers look after a plant or a pet of others while away. Churchgoers carry a stranger's belongings. Churchgoers give directions to a stranger. Churchgoers let someone borrow an item of some value. Churchgoers lend money to another person. Just down it. And then he ends it. I just had to put this clip in there. This is how he ends that list. That said, not a single one of these 15 types of good deeds is more common among secular Americans than among religious Americans. How incredible is that? Are we better neighbors? Statistics say absolutely, 100%. Right? I, I just scratched the surface here. I know you feel like you drank with a fire hose, but I'm telling you, this thing works. What Jesus set up in the church and what we do, it works. Science is proving it. These are books that are, they're not done by Christianity today. They're done by Harvard University. Mostly they have agendas against the church. Like this is shocking to them when they find this stuff out like, oh my goodness, it actually works. That's shocking to us. But you probably don't know that. I know that. 
I know this thing works. I've told you before, there's so much brokenness in my family. My dad died from alcoholism. His parents, I never met my grandparents on his side because they died from alcoholism. My older brother's dead from alcoholism, right? My aunt on my mom's side, alcoholic. My, one of my siblings has a manslaughter charge because of alcoholism on New Year's Eve, right? My little brother, drug addict, homeless on the streets of Grants Pass. What happened to me? Why, what, what, what's the anomaly, right? Which one of these doesn't belong? Why? Because of Jesus. I know it. Because there's a point in my life where I said, I'm not living that way, I'm living for Jesus. I'm living for Jesus. And that's made all the difference in the world. That's why I'm not a statistic. I should be a statistic, right? No dad, none of those things. What's changed? Why do I have a great wife and great kids and this church and great job and love and joy and happiness? Why? Because of Jesus. Because this thing works. Do not grow weary in well-doing. I'm telling you. Why bother? Because it works. Science is showing it works. So when we come to the table today, my prayer is that you have strength, that you don't give up, that we have an enemy that knows if, we can t- if he can get you separated out of the body, man, all the good things that are possible grow dim. Stay here. So Jesus, today, as we hold your broken body, that you gave up comfort, privilege, power. You gave up paradise so that you could give all those things to us. That every good and every perfect gift comes down from you. I pray today that we would eat and partake in your strength to not grow weary in what we know is right. To not listen to the lies of the enemy whose singular goal is to steal the good seed away from us. So I pray that you would strengthen us today. Let's eat together. the cup the cup of forgiveness I pray Lord for those that are in here today that feel condemnation that they've made mistakes in relationships made mistakes as moms or as dads in marriages I pray that they would know that your mercies are new every morning, that today is a new start for them, that we can, by the power of your spirit, plant good seeds today and see a good crop come from them. And we can receive your mercy and your grace in spite of our own brokenness. So may we drink of forgiveness and may we drink of grace and may we drink of mercy today And may it propel us to invest and to plant and to water and to allow you to 
give an increase in our lives. Let's drink together. Amen. We conclude every service with a song. Then up here, there'll be people that would love to pray for you. Big, small, medium, doesn't matter. They want to pray for you. Come be prayed for. And we do baptism. Because the Great Commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teaching everything I've commanded. Making disciples. Baptizing in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's part of that list. And maybe today, on your discipleship path, you say, I want to be baptized. We'd love to be part of that. As Jesus authors and finishes your faith, part of that is baptism. So maybe today's your day. Come be baptized. Prayer or baptism? Would you stand for one final song?